matters of the mind. Are you looking for answers, ideas, or just want someone to listen to you so you can vent? Join Dr. Peter Sacco as he discusses what matters most, issues that surround the mind. He gets to the heart of the matter when it comes to issues involving anger, depression, addictions, fear, anxiety, relationships, sex, abuse, bullying, and everything concerning you. And now, here's your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there, and how are you? Welcome to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week. That would be myself, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco, as well as my co-host and producer, Todd Miller. So, Todd, we are officially September 30th, the last really kind of, if you want to look at it, the glimpse or holding on of whatever summer is left in terms of the calendar. Yeah, calendar, but I think we woke up to uh, December this morning. It was a bit chilly walking the boys to school, that's for sure. So, folks, uh, had a lot of emails this past week, which was really, really awesome. In fact, a couple of authors contacted us. So we've got authors listening to the show and all walks of life, people who are really interested in anything to do with mental health, uh, social functioning in society, relationships, addictions. So please do keep your emails coming. Um, sending them to myself, to Todd Miller, um, also uh, sending us stuff on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever else you're finding us. So I guess uh, one of the interesting things that we've been asked many, many times is, guys, would you uh, be into doing more shows uh, which discuss issues surrounding kids? And with that said, we're going to have a great guest um, later on in the show, Dr. Lynn Kenny who is the family coach, very well known across the United States of America for her great work with kids. And before that, we're going to have our uh, awesome, <laughs> very fun guest, uh, Ellen Campbell from the Center for Abuse Awareness. So let me ask you this, Todd, you've got younger kids. Um, how do you think the, the school system today, teachers in general, uh, do you think they're equipped to deal with the diversity and issues that kids face today? And it's funny that you ask this because we're in the middle of uh, some labor unrest here in Ontario with with teachers. And and I understand there's a lot of issues at play here. But um, just from my own school and the various schools I've been a part of, I think they are struggling to um, keep up with the various needs. Now, I know at my particular school, I have a special needs child. He is mildly autistic um, and it's not really a danger to anyone, um, but he requires extra help. And when teachers are already stressed to deliver the curriculum to um, kids that get it, when there are other kids that have other ranges of issues and different abilities, it really makes it difficult to keep the class um Moving forward, now I know there's teacher's assistants and there are other educational assistants that pop in from time to time, but, you know, in, in one of my kids' class, it's a split class, and uh, it's a challenge because, you know, she has to sort of teach one group, the grade twos, and then say, okay, guys, you go and do something on your own while I go over and work with the grade threes. Uh, so, yeah, she's balancing. I, I just can't imagine how she's managing. You know, it's it's really interesting because you do bring up the point. There are so there is so much diversity um, in Canada in our school system, and definitely across the United States, as uh, Lynn will tell us when she joins us. And what's really interesting, um, how she put it in a in a really cool blog. If anybody has, if you have a chance to go and check out her blog, it's uh, at Lynn Kenny, uh, L I N N E. K-E-N-N-E-Y dot com. She wrote a really awesome blog called Making the School Year Easier by Creating a Culture of Kindness. Let's Create a Classroom Culture Challenge. And you you touch on a lot of things, Todd, because what what we have now is you can really look at it as a melting pot, not only of cultural diversity, religious diversity, um, you're getting into the, you bring it up, uh, mental health uh, diversity as well, too. And at some point, you know, teachers can only do so much. They're really educated to teach. And then I think what's secondary, which now should be more primary, is being, um, how should we say, very humanistic in the classroom and realizing, okay, I'm here to do a job teaching, but I have to identify these individual differences between all of my students, especially those that need a little extra attention. 
you know, and I didn't even touch on the cultural aspect of it, but I mean, at my local school, um, it's it's a there's a high um, concentration of, of immigrants moving to this area, and um, their their English language is not great, so there's the extra stress put on that, and the teachers are managing as best they can. Um, there are all sorts of ESL classes and things, but still, it puts an extra you know stress around the teacher, and then with the with the differing levels of comprehension, uh, mental stresses, um, it really makes it a challenge for teachers to to maintain the momentum for sure. You know, I guess we look at definitely the school system is ever-changing. Um, and, and with that said, it's kind of interesting because I think in today's uh, teacher's education programs, which I've had the wonderful opportunity to get involved with as a professor, um, both sides of the border, as well as in the community as a volunteer for the Business Education Council and going into speaking in schools, I think, you know, back in the day, teachers would teach um, and then it got into a point of facilitating classrooms and even Todd, some people would say teachers were like the second parents or the surrogate parents to kids. And it's interesting how many different roles a teacher has to play in a classroom um, where at the end of the day, and, and I, I put this out for all of our teachers listening because I've had several emails from different teachers, you guys are doing an awesome job. You guys are not only creating, molding, and shaping our future generations, but you're always living in the moment with these kids that really do need your attention and your insights. You know, it's funny because you, as I was hearing you talk, teacher's role really has, um, the role of a teacher really has been shifted and changed over the past you know, 10 or 15 years, um, especially when I was in school, which was more than 15 years ago, but we won't go there. Um, teachers were more disciplinarians. I mean, they they expected you to do the work and there was hell to pay if you didn't. Um, everyone was expected to <clears throat> pay attention in class, get, get everything done during the prescribed time. Um, and there was a, an, an authoritarian error that was in the classroom where I am the teacher, I will dictate the pace of this classroom and what happens in it. Teachers now, while that is still an important part, they're almost like coaches now and mentors and friends because they realize now more than ever there's a human side to the kids and some kids are struggling with various issues, whether it be at home or personal issues. And and teachers have really evolved into um, coaches, you know, someone that Jack Canfield would push out in the workforce and say, you know, go, go do good in this world. And I don't know if all of them are as equally adept at that or prepared. I mean, some teachers just want to teach, which is great, fantastic. Some of them enjoy the human interaction and the support and the mentoring and dealing with their kids on a one-to-one -one level. But again, it just adds more stress to the day when they're supposed to be just saying, okay, two plus two is four. Definitely. And, you know, I'm glad you bring that up uh, about the life skills coaching and all that stuff because our, our host, which will, or, or our host, or, she's going to hopefully host her show because she's that um, insightful. Uh, Dr. Lynn Kenny, she wrote a tremendous book called Bloom 50 Things to Say, Think, and Do with Anxious, Angry, and Over the Top Kids. And it's just a phenomenal book. Um, it is definitely a life skills coaching book for kids. And she's got some really profound sayings. And one of the ones I really, really, really do like from the book and what she has to say is think. That's one of her buttons. Children have the over-the-top feelings when they don't have the skills to cope in the moment. So think about this, folks, anybody listening. Have you ever flown off the handle and then thought, oh my gosh, why did I do that? Or, oh my gosh, I feel so bad. Because, you know, you, you behaved in a moment, a situation which caused you tremendous anxiety, angst, worry, whatever it was. Well, you're able to process this. Kids, children, are not really able to do this uh, because they don't have the skills yet, the abstract, uh, how should we say, logical skills to break it down and go, oh my gosh, I better not react that way because these are the consequences. And this is a great... Um, component that um, Lynn brings to the table with her books uh, and on her blogs, which are just phenomenal, that I think are tremendous resources for teachers, parents, and anybody out there with kids that's interested. This might be a good resource for adults, too, because, and I say this, more and more adults, I find, are reacting in person as if they are watching or reading a Facebook post, where they instantly react, react to it positively or negatively. And I find we've just, as a society, lost that 
take a breath, think about it before you react. I think everybody just sort of reacts like a knee-jerk reaction about everything these days, and it causes a lot of um, damage, I guess. Oh, definitely. And on that note, it's interesting because uh, Lynn has in Bloom 50, she has a quotation, which is, and this applies to all ages, waiting is one of the hardest things to do. So <laughs> patience is definitely a virtue, folks, and we hope you have this virtue with us as we go to a commercial break. And when we come back, we will have Ellen Campbell from the Center for Abuse Awareness. Be right back. And as Tom Petty said, waiting is the hardest part. You're listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio. You'll have to wait for us for a couple of seconds and listen to our sponsor messages. you'll hear on Out of the Blue will be jazz for the most part. No specific styles or genres. Every piece of music is handpicked to deliver quality performances. Out of the Blue can be heard on rtds.ca, live Mondays 1 to 3 p.m., and encore performances Tuesday to Friday, anytime on demand. It's the true spirit of jazz, a touch of everything and then some. Thanks for listening. I'm Larry Green. Peter Andrew Sacco, and do you have technological rage? Oh yeah, the new rage of anger. Download my new book today, Technological Rage, on my website, www.petersacco.com, and learn what technological rage is and how it is sweeping people today, leading to online dating anger, texting anger, and social online networking forums. Hmm, did you ever think you might get angry texting? Facebooking or online dating, maybe you never thought it would happen to you, or maybe you know somebody that has this and you just need to understand it a little more. Welcome back to Mental Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week, even though it is September 30th and it's cooler out, the leaves are falling, we are excited. There's a warmth in the air, which means Thanksgiving is just around the corner, folks, and that means uh, get out there, help community stuff. Uh, there's a lot of individuals that are in need, whether it be food, clothing, or just an ear. That is you listening to them. And with that said, we've got our great guest, as we have each and every week, Ellen Campbell, Campbell, who is the CEO and founder of the Center, Canadian Center, that is, for Abuse Awareness, which is abusehurts.com you, and .ca. You can go online and see them. Ellen, how are you today? I'm great. Thank you, Peter. Very nice fall day. <laughs> that it is, yes. You're an optimist then, I take it. I am so. You have to be, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alan, since we last had you on the show, um, now, and I, I point out that it is September 30th, so that means tomorrow is October, which means you have a month of really great things happening uh, with the Canadian Centre for Abuse Awareness, including a, a, a giant seminar. Right. Conference. So can you tell us about the conference that's upcoming? Sure. Well, it's, um, it's specifically for men, but it's for men and their partners or their support people or families. Um, one day is for professionals that work in the area of trauma and abuse with men. And then the other two days are just a combination. Um, but the other two days, definitely the men and families are welcome. And this would be everyone from men that might be dealing with early childhood trauma, or it could be men that are dealing with domestic abuse. It doesn't have to be sexual. It can be any kind of abuse. Um, and um, I think there'll be something for everybody, and I, I just really encourage the partners and support people of the men to come out, even though it may not be you directly. As you know, Peter, whole family suffers when someone is dealing with post-traumatic stress and, and you know, and all the trauma from from abuse. 
Definitely. And, you know, Alan, I'm glad you bring that up because abuse, whether it be physical abuse, mental abuse, sexual abuse, and I'll even go out there and say spiritual abuse, which is based mm -hmm. on you know, abuse of religiosity and yes. cult, cult organizations and that. Yeah. It is one of these things, Alan, I'm glad you point out, it's passed down from generation to generation. There is not a, you know, a heredity uh, genetic component to it in the DNA. However, it is socially induced from one generation to the next. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's hope. I think what this conference will, will give people is a lot of hope. And as you know, Peter, and I do, and Todd, that we've seen a lot of people like myself um, that have come through it. And you can have a very full, wonderful life. Um, you know, and I, I think the other thing that's really interesting, I had dinner with a young lady yesterday. Now, it, it, it's a woman, but I, I think men probably go through the same thing that have, that have had to go through the court system. And the way courts deal with survivors and trauma, lots of times they can even try to use it against you um, in a court case. So it's just another kind of, of re-victimization when people go through the, the court process. And this woman really was, you know, sexually abused as a child and ended up with a very abusive husband. But because he had money and she didn't, um, she got really, really um, very sick and cognitively and in every way and has come through it. But it just brought out to me again that when victims go forward, um, you better have a lot of support in place and that be prepared. You better be strong when you're about to, you know, deal with this issue if you have to go either to the police or the court. As you were saying, um, it is for partners, and healing doesn't happen in a vacuum. It really happens with um, trusting everyone, trusting your partners. And, and, you know, I would say some people would even need to come forward to their employers and say, here's what I'm going through. And, and I would say anyone that's gone through any of this trauma, <clears throat> most companies have an EAP, an Employee Assistance Program which would be a wonderful resource for people to start the journey to healing. The conference is called the Healing Journeys Conference. It happens October 2nd, 22nd to Saturday, October 24th. It's at Humber College. Um, if you'd like to register, visit abusehurts.ca or call 1-800-379-8858. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the um, the Friday keynote. Dr. Bill Jasik, is it? Um, addictions yes. and Trauma yes. Expert. What um, what will he be talking about? What, what does he bring to the conference? Well, he's probably one of the leading, I think, trauma therapists in North America. I mean, he travels all over the world, really, to speak. And he... He is really unique because his background is addiction. But as you know, you probably realize that lots of times when people are dealing with addiction and you go into a treatment center, especially if it's a 28-day program, they deal with the drama and the addiction. But then once the person stops the, the alcohol or the drugs or anything that you know, they've been using, then um, the trauma comes up. So you have to deal with the two together. And I think he's going to be dealing with some of that um, specifically. Uh, but he's, he's a, a really amazing, amazing man. Used to be chairman of our board. Was the senior doctor at Homewood Health Center and now is one of the senior doctors at uh, Greenstone up in, uh, up in Bala. You know, that's really interesting. Uh, I was just discussing this last week in one of my lectures um, in, in terms of concurrent disorders that it's still within our society, Ellen, we do see it that it's still, well, let's grab the lesser or the greater of the two evils and we'll deal with the lesser of the two evils later on, where sometimes right. what you're seeing is the lesser of the two evils in the substance or alcohol abuse, whereas the real manifesting, manifesting cause, if you want to call it, mm -hmm. um, is the actual trauma. And, exactly. And the thing is, is, as you say, you have to remove both. Uh, and sometimes you're, you're getting the superficial, the shell removed, but the underlying label. And, uh, you know, it's great that he's going to be discussing that in great depth because that is one of the problems in our society is a lot of self-medication, either by substances, alcohol, or over-the-counter medications. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's why there's so much relapse. And 28-day programs, I guess they're good, but as you know, Peter, it's, it's much longer than 28 days uh, if you're dealing with trauma. And so it's really important you've got to deal with both. And I don't think 
there's a lot of treatment centers that are, I think they're starting to come around, but really he was one of the pioneers at Homewood to, to put this program together. Yeah, Homewood is, is just a, a fabulous um, facility. I've taught uh, staff there, trained their staff, and it, as what I mentioned, it's, it's a, it treats concurrent disorder simultaneously, which means it treats both the addiction as well as the mental health or, you know, um, psychological reasoning for why an individual would drink drug or engage in their compulsive behavior in the first place, which is one of the best approaches, which is also referred to as the STEMS model. So folks, if anybody out there is listening and you know a loved one or you yourself are saying, hey, I've got, I feel depressed, but when I drink it alleviates it, but then I got to drink more, you know, to deal with my depression, then I'm more depressed after, you know, when I'm hung over or whatever, then you might actually want to look into a great program like Homewood, call them, get some information, because they really do treat, as I said, the concurrent disorder simultaneously. Mm-hmm, exactly. And the Healing Journeys Conference, just to go back to that for a second, it's it's uh, three days. Um, I really... I. I really would like you to tell people that it is a trusting atmosphere to go to to explore starting the healing journey because I think some people still get the impression that they'll go there and they'll be judged for anything that's happened to them and it's probably a pretty common feeling that anyone that has some significant trauma um, inflicted on them somehow has some blame as part of the process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I remember the first conference I ever went to and you're, 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 you're very vulnerable, very you know, I think very easily triggered. Um, and I think that's the benefit of a conference like this, as we spoke about the last time even, that nobody knows why you're there. You could be a therapist, you could be a family member. So it's quite safe. Also, because of the nature of the, the conference and the people that are presenting, it's also very safe. They're, they're, they're not going to, like one of the problems I have seen in the past, and maybe you can to this as well is that people can go into too much detail and people get very triggered but because of the nature of the people that are dealing with the conference and are there they're going to be very sensitive to the audience and to who are there and so it's going to be an extremely safe probably the safest environment you could go to really um and then if you really get triggered um i think they'll probably have you know roving therapists or some support people to just get you centered again so it's very, very safe. And, and you'll find out what's available for help, whether it's for the family or the individual, whether it's addiction or whatever it is. You're going to find out what's out there. And there's actually, while there's not enough, there's a lot of avenues and a lot of opportunities. It's, it's a really, really, really going to be informative. And they'll break up into workshops as well. Um, but you'll, I think the, the other gift, I feel, is that you're going to realize, wow, I'm not alone. There's a lot of people dealing with this, and this is not. I'm. I'm not. Um, I'm not a freak. I just. I had some freakish things happen to me, maybe, but I am fine, and I'm going to be okay. That's a, it, It's hope, and I, that's a big word. I always want to say. There's so much hope when you go to something like this. Well, I'm glad that it's happening. I'm glad that you guys are doing it. Um, it sounds like an incredible couple of days to kickstart someone who maybe hasn't um, had the opportunity or the will or the desire to um, <clears throat> attempt to heal themselves. And as you said, um, it, it's great for partners as well to really understand a little bit more about what is happening with the person that they love and spend their lives with. So Ellen Campbell from the CCAA, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you. As again. always. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for the show. It's, it's, it's amazing that you're getting the word out there. It's wonderful. Anything for you, Ellen, and your oh. organization. And we'll be talking to you next week again. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank Take you. Care. More Matters of the Mind right around the corner. Buying or selling a home, condo, or investment property may be one of the largest transactions you'll ever make. It's important to gather as much information as you can, and preferably from experienced, successful professionals. When it comes time to make your move, call the Mulholland Ross Real Estate Team with Keller Williams Real Estate Service at 416-230-8500 or visit www.realestatetoronto.com. Whether you're making your first move or selling your much-loved family home, the Mulholland Ross Team offers over 26 
36 years of real estate sales and service across the GTA. Listen every Sunday at 4 p.m. here on Radio That Doesn't Suck to hear the team share advice and information that will assist you with your personal wealth through real estate. Questions or topics you'd like to see covered? Email info at realestatetoronto.com or call the Mulholland Ross team at 416-230-8500. Welcome to my new book, Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths, which is not just a book about ghosts and haunted places, rather about history in the Niagara region. This book explores and uncovers parts of the Niagara region which are considered some of the richest in North American history and the most haunted. As a matter of fact, one of the bloodiest battles in North American history, the War of 1812, between the British and the Americans was fought here. And this year, the bicentennial year anniversary of the War of 1812 is covered in this book. This book explores most of the haunted places, legends that have existed from the 1800s right now to 2012. Each chapter covers a different type of landmark which not only educates readers on historical significances, but also entertains with anecdotal ghost stories and paranormal investigations. Join me in this book as we visit beds and breakfasts, ships and boats, trains, tunnels, museums, mansions, highways, forts, cemeteries, waterfalls, and many more, and see if the Niagara region is really haunted. Niagara's Most Haunted Legends and Myths is now available at Indigo Chapters and online on Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and visit our website, www.niagara'smosthaunted.com. Be afraid. Be very afraid. To Mental Health Matters with Dr. Peter Sacco on radio that doesn't suck.com and rtds.ca. Well, hello there, and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything in your mind matters to us each and every week, even on this September 30th. So we hope you're bundling up today, uh, those in the, I should say, Ontario region, Canada region. We're pretty much cold even across the border into the northern United States. So as we promised, great guests. We talked earlier in the show about kids, improving self-esteem, improving awareness for teachers, parents on how to readily identify anxious angry and over-the-top kids. We got a great guest, Lynn Kenny, who is a pediatric psychologist, and she is providing thinking and self-regulation strategies for anxious, angry, intense, or disorganized children at home and in the classroom. And she's got a great book called Bloom, 50 Things to Say, Think, and Do with Anxious, Angry, and Over-the-Top Kids. And it is a great multimedia parenting book with a video and downloadable printable mantras which is going to be exceptional for those that really do want to become more in tune with today's kids welcome to the show lynn how are you hey my honor i'm doing great pete well i guess one of the first things that we want to talk about with you lynn is you are the family coach so tell us a little bit how long you've been in the business and what really got you into i guess uh focusing on kids and parenting Well, you know, it's kind of funny because my first degree was actually in sports psychology, and then I fellowed in forensic psychology, but once I had my children, I said I don't want to meet any more dangerous people. I want to meet cute little adorable kids who need more love, and so I then fellowed in developmental pediatrics at UCLA and have been hanging out with thousands of children ever since in schools, in homes. I did a lot of in-home interventions. I believe they really work quickly. And then in about the past maybe seven years, we've been writing books. We've written two, and we're on our third right now. So as a psychologist, let me ask Eulen, who is a psychologist, do you find it um, tedious or even compromising in terms of applying the principles to other people's kids uh, in in education programs, uh, daycares? all that kind of stuff versus your own children. Oh, you know, I think that I interact with the kids in my office, on the playground, in the swimming pool, the exact same way I interact with my own children at home. And it's kind of a mindset. It takes a little bit of discipline. I just tweeted to somebody this morning, using the Bloom methodology and philosophy is a mindset that says, 
we're going to partner on this, we're going to solve this together. It's not about blame, shame, and harm. It's about, in a loving, collaborative way, saying, hey, you know, this is, this is Team Tom or this is Team Sarah. Let's do it, guys. Uh, so I would say I'm exactly the same at home and, and at work. It's funny that you say you don't want to deal with dangerous people. Have you ever seen a four-year-old with a crayon? Because <laughs> it, it can be challenging. Um, <laughs> what I love about what I'm hearing from you is that, um, and I think, I think for any of these life changes that we desire to make, whether it's internal or whether it's helping a child deal with some struggles, you need to be consistent. And I think there's, there's no quick fix for any of these things. Now, now, you say there is an intervention, which is fantastic, because it's like a triage. You, you dive in and you quickly look, you know, assess what's going on with the situation. But I'm also hearing that you're giving some strategies for long-term solutions. Yeah, I would say that our, you know, Wendy, uh, Wendy Young wrote, co-wrote Bloom with me, and our philosophy works for the long term. So you can punish and control children in the short term and manage them, you know, in, in the moment, but it's not a long-term solution. So what we would rather do is identify what are the skill sets that they're needing in order to exhibit the expected behavior, and then we want to help uh, engage their thinker, engage their caveman, the different parts of their brain, in order to collaboratively solve whatever the challenge is. So as an example, you guys, I was at the airport because I tend to travel a lot, and I saw this mother um, kind of threatening a three-year-old. This just happened like four days ago. She was like, you know, Samuel, if you don't come over here, I'm going to send you to timeout. And she looked at me with this look in her eyes like, I don't really want to be doing this. And, you know, I always resist in public, you know, jumping in and solving things. But I kind of quietly said a prayer for her, and I smiled at her, and I kind of motioned, like, with my body to kind of get down close to the child. And instead of sending him to time out, even just my using nonverbals, which honestly is about 80% of our communication, she ended up going over to him and kneeling down and looking at what it was that he was interested in. And I was like, okay, that is the beginning of a connected relationship where she's going to be able to better manage him instead of telling him from far away, you're going to be in trouble if you don't do what I, what, you know, what I tell you to do. It's funny you mentioned that. I'm just going to jump in here quickly that it's the height thing. There just seems to be this <laughs> almost like an adversarial relationship where they have to look up at you and you tower over them and everything you say comes from on high. And, and then that simple act of getting down to eye level with them sort of disarms them in, in a way of speaking. It does. It's funny because I tell people that sometimes if you play with children enough, it's like you walk around as though you've got this, you know, this imaginary magic dust because they can just tell that you've been used to playing with children. Getting down on the floor, you guys, is the fastest way to move around the defensive brain with everybody from an 18 or even a 9-month-old to an 80-year-old. I mean, you'd be very surprised that when I'm intervening with families of teenagers, even though my, my books reportedly are written for up to age 12, we use the same strategies with 18 and 21-year-olds, and that is get up close, get down you know, on the floor, or get on the soccer field, or go where those kids want to be. Instead of you leading them to where you want them to be, join with them, and then they will follow. You know what, I'm glad to bring this up because this is something that I've been talking a lot about in lectures and on shows myself, and I've been asked this a lot, and now that we have you on, who is really a tremendous noted expert in this field, how has technology played in, you know, back in the day, you'd have way better communication between parents and kids, well, at least you would hope there would be face-to-face, -face. then eventually it'd be over the phone, and now it's texting and that stuff. Do you, and, and this is even with younger kids because you see kids with cell phones texting as well too, uh, texting their parents or their online social media. Do you believe that communication has further been compromised by the advances in technology? Are parents having even a greater time with kids relating to one another? I think there are pros and cons to all of the technological changes. The pros are that we can actually be in greater uh, contact, more frequent contact. The question is, how are we sacrificing quality of contact? So, you know, human relationships, there's a book called Social by Michael Lieberman that I really love and recommend to people if they're interested in kind of brain-based socialization. And basically, essentially, this book shows us that 
um, music, song, uh, talking, playing, all of those things matter as much in our relationships as they ever have. So we've got to take the time, especially as parents. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I'm as addicted to my uh, you know, iPhone as my kids are. And you have to practice self-discipline. You've got to say, listen, my kids are coming into the room now. I'm putting the phone down. I can answer that email later. And I'm going to go be, I'm going to sit next to them. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to look them eye to eye. I might even join in in whatever it is that they're interested in. So that's one thing. Another curious thing is that I happened to have, I had to do research on this last week because I'm writing an article about um, technology and young children. And there's a statistic, and I hope I say it correctly um, because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like um, between 50 and 70% of children have played with a smartphone before they're two years of age. And I spoke with a researcher about this, and he said, Lynn, the hardest thing in our research studies of toddlers right now is if we're using a computer, we need them to interact with the buttons on the computer, and they always want to touch the screens. So we're literally reshaping the brains of these children um, to, you know, interact with and act on technology, and we don't mind that, but we want them to be in playful, old-fashioned relationships as well. You know, in the past, Lynn, and this is kind of digressing a bit, but it still ties into it. We, we chatted, oh, back in the summer, and I was speaking to colleagues of mine who are school teachers and also some other individuals who are in counseling fields, social work fields. And, you know, let's face it, we are up in Canada, you're down there in the States. And, you know, we look at terms differently in terms of political correctness and also um, in terms of manageability. And I guess the question is, what is the difference then? Somebody had asked me this between facilitating and coaching your kids versus parenting. Should we even make that, you know, go there? Because have we gotten away from true parenting and become more of a cold society, uh, almost a, you know, technical, technical society, teaching society, where we now resort to facilitating and teaching or coaching our kids? Well, it's interesting because I think that, if, you know, we all define parenting differently, and I have the pleasure of going to Canada up to three times a year. I love Canada. I love the Canadians. I'll, I forget when I'm next. I think I'm there in the spring. Um, and you guys are a very loving nation. I know it's hard to say that about millions and millions of people, but you tend to be a rather connected group of people, um, maybe more connected than some, than some of us Americans. And the bottom line is that coaching or mentoring or guiding or teaching, to me, is a big part of parenting. See, parent, we've made a mistake. We started to buy into what I call the discipline trap, and that is believing that we need to consequence our children into new behaviors. You know, uh, I would say 70% of the questions that I got in my pediatric practice within a neuropsychology practice was, you know, my kid won't listen. What should the consequence be? Um, and the, the question isn't what the, should the consequence be. The question, the, the, the question should be, how can I guide or coach or interact with my child so that he's a more skillful, compassionate, um, well-thinking, caring child? If we're thinking in terms of that, then we're doing lots of coaching and modeling. I mean, Bloom is all about offering the new thoughts, new words, new actions, because Wendy and I, for some odd reason, interact with a lot of people online and have since 2006. And... We find that they, a lot of people will email us or tweet us, I want to stop punishing my child, but I have no idea what to say. And so in Bloom, that's why we wrote over 200 mantras. We were like, listen, your kid's about to bite. Here's a something that you can say. Your kid's about to bite. Here's something that you can do. Your kid won't get out of bed because they're nervous about going to school. Here's something that you can say, or here's something even that you can think. We were finding, and you probably find this too, that parents sometimes would say, my child's intentionally trying to make me angry. And we had to help even these bright parents understand that your child always wants to be loved, always wants to be connected to you. If you're getting mad or frustrated with your child, it's because he's got a skill deficit. He needs your help in having the thoughts, words, and actions to successfully navigate a difficult situation. So you're always his best coach and mentor. We're with Dr. Lynn Kenny. We've got two minutes before we go to break, so last question. And what I'm hearing is you 
one of the main fundamentals of parenting or coaching is giving someone, giving a transferable skill to someone that currently lacks that skill so that when they are away from you, they are able to function better than just with the threat of, you know, doing the opposite. And that's really what parenting comes down to for me is hopefully transferring those skills so that your little four, five, six, eight, ten year old, when they're at school, when they're at play, they've got some of those skills to function correctly in in this situation, especially in a social setting. I, I think you said it more beautifully than I've heard anybody ever say it. And when I teach, you know, uh, parents of little children, I say, of course, you be the child's brain. You've got an 18-month-old who's going to hit or, or spit or bite or kick. You be their brain and, so that then they can be a better brain. You know, you don't say, you're going to get in trouble, I'm going to punish you, you're going to... You don't do that. You say, oh, well, what else could we do? Oh, and what's over there? Oh, and isn't that interesting? And you... you you like be the frontal lobes so that they can then um, use their frontal lobes more effectively exactly like you said when you're not there you don't want threats especially with teenagers to be what manages them you want good decision making good thinking good problem solving good mood regulation you want the, your kid to have those kinds of skills not just fear of getting in trouble yeah the creative thinking because as you said it doesn't work with a lot of older kids as guiding them in the right way, you know, having these fears over their head saying, well, geez, if I do that, my dad's going to be mad at me versus what are all the possible situations? And I like what you said too, allowing the kids to throw out a bunch of suggestions that maybe don't make sense and are probably not correct, but at least it engages them in the process of saying, no, that's not really going to work in this situation, but what else have we got? What else can you think of? And you can even say, yes, I concur with you, and I know we're going to break, but, you know, if they give you the silliest idea, then you say, oh, wow, we can use that. We can build on that. Let's think about that. Um, You know, Dr. Doss, I don't know if you know J.P. Doss. He's from Canada. He's 92 years old. He's one of the most well-known cognitive scientists of all time. He's created all sorts of uh, brain interventions for dyslexia and math. And if you read his manuals, he never says no. He always builds on what the child is offering, and that is what enhances skill sets. So take one good thing out of there and build on it, rather than just offhandedly say, no, crappy idea. I like that. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Matters in the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio worldwide at talk-radio.ca. Health Matters with your host, Dr. Peter Sacco. Well, hello there and welcome back to Matters of the Mind, where everything on your mind matters to us each and every week, so definitely keep the questions coming in, suggestions for our show, because we love you. And we love our guest, Lynn Kenny, who is a pediatric psychologist who is absolutely phenomenal as she provides thinking and self-regulation strategies for anxious, angry, intense, or disorganized children at home and in the classroom. So I got first question here, Lynn, because I know Todd <laughs> wants to get right in there with many. So one of the questions I want to ask, and it's something that is really um Touch me when I read your blog, which is a phenomenal blog, and I encourage listeners already to check it out. Making the school year easier by creating a culture of kindness. How would, you know, your blog is quite long. It gets into a lot of different aspects of this. I guess in a, a putting it kind of in a, a synopsis, how would you go about this if, you, you know, you had a teacher or teachers or school board sitting in front of you saying, uh, Dr. Kenny, what is the best way of accomplishing this, making a culture of kindness within my classroom? How would you answer that? Well, I'm really pleased that you asked because we, we cannot believe how many people have been interested in this concept. I mean, we're now going to do probably two-day certifications on the Bloom-based philosophy and how to create cultures and families of kindness because people are very hungry for this information. And the, what we try to do is make things very simple. And the bottom line is that this, um, you'll, you'll see in a, in a future blog post that isn't out, it's going on a, another website, that this all came to be because we wrote Bloom and then teachers were like, how do we do it in the classroom? How do we do it in the classroom? And then last year, I'm involved in sports still, and I had observed that 
as an example, in this sporting situation, this freshman had made the um, varsity team in a sport, but the varsity players really didn't welcome her. Um, they weren't mean to her, but they didn't know how to be welcoming. And I thought, why aren't the coaches coaching them on how to bring this kid in? And then it struck me that people are so bound up by consequences and time out, they don't know how to model and teach other people to create relationships. So the way that you create kindness in anywhere, whether it's a classroom or a sports team or in your own home, is to have a conversation about what is the culture within your family. And you have a brainstorm. And basically, I usually set it up by saying, and I've done it thousands of times, um, hey, you guys, if like the principal came to this classroom or a Martian came to this classroom or if somebody from France came, what would they see? How would they see us interacting with one another? What would they notice? And then the kids start making comments. They might say, well, Joey's mean, and Sarah bites her pencil, and Samuel helps Robert with his math. And then you, you grab onto that. You're like, Samuel helps Robert with his math. That's a terrific thing. How could we build more of that helping in this classroom? And you brainstorm just in a conversation about without ever saying we are going to be kind to one another, you point out all the specific behaviors that are kind. Uh, actually, in the first book we wrote, we called it Fishing in the Pond of Good Behavior. You notice all of the goodness, and then you look at all the goodness on, in the brainstorm on your, on your chalkboard or whatever you've used with your class, and you say, listen, there are some similarities between these behaviors. There is a theme running through this classroom. And I want us to really memorialize that theme and write it down and post it up so that all the other classrooms can be as successful and happy and terrific as we are. So what is the theme here? And then they start to say, well, we're helpful to one another, we're kind to one another, we focus on our work, we respect each other. And you guide them, you know, you guide the conversation, and eventually what you end up with is a mission statement. And that mission statement is what you continually fall back on when things are going well in your classroom and when things are not working. Wow. It's not hard. I've done it so many times, I can't even tell you. I've done it, it in families with three-year-olds. It, it's just a, a conversation of what's working well here, and then how can we have more of that? And then what would we label that or call that? Oh, in our family, we X. In our classroom, we X. And I think in the blog post that's on my site currently, the current article, I think that I give some of those sentences so you could have a brainstorm in your class and just fill out those questions, fill out those um, those sentences, and then make a beautiful banner or write a song about it that you sing to the principal or make a movie, you know, that you then show at morning meeting. Just communicate to everybody that you have a landscape, you have a culture in your classroom, and when they come to your classroom, not only are they going to see it, but they're going to be invited to join it. I'm looking at your blog right now. I'm just amazed by the the variety of topics that you cover in your blog. I mean, just from from emotional stuff to um, you know eating tips, and I love the uh, kids eat clean hashtag and badges that you can probably print out. Pretty amazing stuff. Um, what I really wanted to talk to you about before we before we let you go, we've got some about eight minutes left, but. Um, Autism seems to be on the rise. I have a, a, a child who has Asperger's, which is now reclassified, as, as we all know, as high-functioning autism. And one of the things he really struggles with is emotional regulation. And I noticed that some the, one of the main themes on your site is just, you know, right at the top, it's got happy, optimistic, sunny, hopeful, anxious, angry, overwhelmed, sad. You're really helping children identify their feelings and then giving them some tools to help them relay that and be okay with that, if that's what I'm reading from that. So this, this topic, topic of autism, even the increase of all neurological and developmental illnesses in childhood is of great concern. If you look at their trajectory, it has more than doubled in the past 10 years. All right, so the bottom line is there is a, there is a foundation that nobody knows about yet, but in the winter you'll know about them, and you just keep them in the back of your mind. They're called the Neurological Health Foundation. Okay. And they are a collection of some of America's. We'd love to have all around the world. They're interacting with people all around the world. But this specific scientific advisory board is from America. 
and there are researchers at some top universities who really feel that there are a few things that that prospective parents can do to reduce the incidence of, of autism. And the reason I tell you this, because then I'm going to go into social-emotional regulation, is that mo- much of it has to do with food and toxin avoidance. And so eventually the Neurological Health Foundation will have what's called the Healthy Child Guide, and it will be free. This is all completely free. All of these doctors have donated every second Amazing. of their time. They've been, do- they've been working on this for over 18, uh, up to three years. And there'll be a guide regarding what you could do in order to um, reduce the chances that you're going to have a neuro- neurologically unique child. So that's number one. Number two is that within those populations, what they're eating and toxin avoidance is very, very important. And at another time, I could refer you to people who are really great at that, Jan Katzen, Julie Matthews, uh, Dr. Jim Adams. So that's kind of foundational because what I learned, I, um, I was actually in... The, a developmental pediatric practice with Ron Melmed in 1994 before autism was really becoming well understood. And he was pretty much the primary diagnostic center in Phoenix. And so I saw a lot of those early children and I saw the tra- trajectory rise. And what we noticed was that before we intervene behaviorally, even though a lot of us are doing uh, you know, applied behavioral analysis with them, we need to intervene in the gut. So that is a, the, that's the most important message that everybody needs to know, that the microbiome of these kids is often not working, and therefore their cells are not uh, getting rid of the toxins as well as they need to. And that is the very newest So if research. I'm reading between the lines and looking at your website, your nutritional information is not just to ensure that kids are eating well, um, or eating properly, but also to eat well so that their bodies can heal and function properly, not just from a, a calorie perspective or nutrition, but deeper than that. It is, and I don't want to harp on this too long because I do want to tell you about the, the self-regulation stuff, but the thing is that we psychologists need to know that many of us are getting called into IEP, you know, um, IEP meetings. We're getting called into hospitals in order to do behavior plans with these children, and we've got to start with the microbiome. We've got to start with the gut. It's a big mistake. It's like getting caught in the discipline trap of autism. It's a big mistake to only go at the behavior without checking the cellular function of the child. And I, if we had an hour-long show, I could tell you like three stories that would make you just go, oh, my gosh. So this is the newest research. We've got to be paying attention. And the Neurological Health Foundation is a a nonprofit that'll, that I'll, I'll, I'll send you the stuff when it's all ready because it's all being developed. Now, with regard to behavior, what's fascinating is that in this next book, um, it's called Bloom Brain Smarts, and it's 101 activities to build better thinking and self-regulation. And I, just this week, moved a section of the book to the very top, and it's relevant to your beautiful son. And basically, the, the section of the book is the newest research on the importance of rhythm and timing in our bodies and how closely tied to self-regulation, rhythm, and timing are. And Todd, I've created this methodology that I'd love to like test out with you. Okay, <laughs> I'll fly up there and we can try it because basically what we do is we teach children, they have to have a sufficient amount of cognitive skill because there's a little bit of abstracting. Um, but I would say probably anybody with an IQ over 80 at least probably understand this. And what we do is we show them four notes Uh, quarter note, half note, whole note, rest, and we teach them that that you are musical. Even if you don't know that you're musical, you were born musical because human beings are musical, and there's all sorts of neuroscientific reasons why. And then we show them that all of their movements um, align with a musical note. And then we teach them to be empowered with regard to their mood regulation and their motor regulation by, um, by moving in rhythm with a specific note. So I'll give you a perfect example. If your son, as an example, um, was in his classroom and the teacher said, oh, you know, who's got the answer to this question? He was raising his hand really and going really, really fast. Through this methodology, I would slowly teach him that he's moving his hand in a 16th note. Yeah. And I would slowly begin to teach him that he's going to have a better, happier response if he raises his hand in a half note, holds it for a whole, 
then when the teacher maybe chooses somebody else, not him, this is when he blows up, right? Mm. He brings his hands together in front of his peaceful heart in the rest position, and he takes a deep breath. So instead of just, so basically we're empowering them with their natural biological rhythms, and this is the work of like Nina Krauss and Karen O'Very and Alex Doman. We're attaching that research, which is not even in psychology, to this methodology to assist children with energy management using musical notes. Well, we speak the same language because I'm a musician, so <laughs> this could be interesting. Well, you, could, yeah. you know, it's interesting when... And, and, I guess this really is, it is a new method. Um, it, it's almost like back in the day, if you're familiar with art therapy and different types of color therapy methods that's used to use for kids, almost like getting more in tune and blending and uh, amalgamating the right and left hemispheres of the brain, which is I think is fabulous in kids. Well, it's funny because when I was teaching these brain interventions, I've been traveling around for, this is my fourth year traveling a lot. And somebody, a few people usually would say, well, what about, well, this is also musical. What about the music part? And I would say, I know it's musical, but I'm not a musician. I don't understand music, and that's like stuff I have to study in the future. Right now I'm so busy studying the motor components of the self-regulation and the energy management. And, Todd, we have this really cute thing that will be in the next book, too, which I'm happy to share this stuff with you as, long, as, as soon as it's well-written. We've got this really cute thing that we call, um, we call it couch potatoes and tornadoes and we have this little marshmallow so instead of like color coding their angry mountain which was in the first book and other people do that too like zones of regulation what we do is we teach them that your feeling state your energy state inside of you is like a marshmallow and it moves along this stick or this continuum between being a couch potato and being a tornado and we help them make decisions well there's of course recognizing labeling categorizing you know uh dr sacco knows all about this you help them to make determinations regarding where their marshmallow is going to be on this continuum in order to match the specific circumstances of the situation because as an example right now on this phone call even though you know i get really energized about this work i'm not so energized that i'm going to jump out of my seat because i'm having a phone call but if a lion appears at the door, i got to move my marshmallow and get out of here fast. <laughs> and so we've got lots of, like, we're doing lots of anchoring and cueing strategies um, in the next book so that we're not just having auditory-based conversations. We're being very tactile, we're being very motor-oriented, and we're being very musical. That is absolutely awesome. Our guest is Lynn Kenny, who is a pediatric psychologist who provides thinking and self-regulation strategies for anxious, angry, intense, or disorganized children at home and in the classroom. We're out of time, Lynn, but before we let you go, how can people learn more about your awesome book, more about you, and even get in contact with you if they want to? Well, there's, thank golly, there's tons of free stuff on the website, lynnkenney.com, L-Y-N-N-E-K-E-N-N-E-Y.com. And we do have an international campaign with a Canadian beginning tomorrow, Toscarino, who you would love to have on your show. She was the creator of the Eat Clean Diet. She and I and about 30 other experts under this hashtag, Kids Eat Clean, are sharing 100% free information. Um, really cute. we got a cute bingo game. we got a nice grocery list because we're trying to help make it easier for families to encourage their children to eat clean without all the confusion and the fuss. Wow. Yeah, and I'm looking again at the site. There are just so many resources. The book is called Bloom, 50 Things to Say, Think, and Do with Anxious, Over, Angry, and Over-the-Top Kids. And I think it's going to be a wonderful resource. I'm going to definitely check it out because I think, uh, irrespective of the book that's coming, I think this book can offer me some immediate um, solutions that I can implement at home for sure. And I'm, I'm certain there's a lot of parents that could benefit from it. So we will have to say goodbye to you, but we'd love to have you back on a future show for sure. I'm sure there'll be lots of uh, things coming from you in the future. Well, thank you. And Todd, in the future, we'll, um, we'll practice some of the music methodologies and we'll show Dr. Sacco and, and we'll do them with your child. We can even do it via Skype and uh, see, how, see how it works. We can do a little, a little experiment before the book gets published. That would be fabulous. Thank you so much, Lynn. You are an exceptional okay. um, resource, wealth of information uh, to our listeners and everybody out there that definitely wants to learn more about raising and promoting uh, better lifestyles and kids. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure and honor. Bye-bye, everybody. More Matters of the Mind right around the corner. You can talk to me.
Welcome back to Matters of the Mind. Thank you so much, folks, for joining us today. Thank you to our great guests, Ellen Campbell from the Center for Abuse Awareness, and of course, Dr. Lynn Kenny. Great guests, and we're going. We promise, definitely, folks. We promise we're going to keep great guests. Continue coming and continue to send in your emails, ideas for the shows. We love you, and we're grateful that you tune in each and every week. We are all over social media. Reach out to us at Listen Up Talk on Twitter, on Facebook, Listen Up Talk Radio. Dr. Sacco is all over Facebook as well. Check out his books, petersacco.com. We will catch you right back here next Wednesday at 8 p.m. And don't forget, if you miss the show live at 8, you can catch it the next day on podcast. Catch you next week. You've been listening to Matters of the Mind on Listen Up Talk Radio with your host, Dr. Peter Andrew Sacco. Get in touch with him on his website, petersacco.com. Or find his contact page on Listen Up at talk-radio.ca. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash listenuptalkradio. On Twitter at listenuptalk. Thanks for listening and sharing our posts. We'll catch you next week. And all the